0: This is Two Girls, One Mike, the show that talks about the holes and plot holes of your favorite porn.
1: Welcome to Two Girls, One Mike, the show where if we were botanists, we call our vaginas penis fly traps. I'm your co-host, Alice Vaughn, and with me, I have my stunning guest co-host, Kate Kennedy. Kate, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Alice? (laughs) I'm doing great. So Yvette's, I know, still on medical leave, but I mean, you do fill multiple roles, comedian, porn star, soon-to-be author, or... Thank you. I just started writing a book. Is it smut or autobiography? What are we
0: doing? It's more like a series of essays that kind of explain the adult industry in really plain language in a very non-sensational, non-sexy way. I don't want the sex to be the focus. I want the, our lives to be, you know, I want it to be relatable.
1: So we do happen to have another guest on this show today. And we have Jen Gunter, the internet's gynecologist, OBGYN and pain medicine physician on the show. Jen, thanks for joining our little show today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I have seen you for years debunking Gwyneth Paltrow's goop or telling people why they shouldn't put stuff in their vaginas. I'm really glad you can tell our audience, as well as the male audience, what shouldn't go into someone's vagina.
2: That's why we brought you on here. Yeah, it's a pretty long list of what shouldn't go in. And it seems that every day that I'm online, that list grows longer. Like now it's toothpaste. Don't put toothpaste in your vagina. No, no. (laughs) Who's doing that? It's the ye old vaginal tightening shtick, I guess, right? You know, so everything that should make your vagina dry and painful is apparently good, according to the internet, which is just an extension of the patriarchy.
1: (laughs) I saw somewhere once someone mentioned putting vaginal mints into your vagina. I mean, I don't think that's going to be Altoids' new marketing campaign.
2: Yeah, no. I think we need to stop with this and start focusing on, you know, all the men who are saying these things should go in vaginas. Maybe they should try them in their rectum first. I don't know. Not really. I actually don't want anyone to get hurt. So none of those things should go in anywhere. But yeah, it is kind of depressing that in this day and age with all the information that we have and access to everything that these myths are still around.
1: What's the craziest thing that you've come across of people putting in their vaginas? Well, I thought
2: toothpaste was pretty crazy, I have to say, but I would say oak galls, which are basically like wasps nests where larvae develop. (laughs) Um, And you can buy them on Etsy. So I do sometimes when I'm bored or I'm awake at two in the morning because of some reason. I will go and I look at gyno Etsy. (laughs) So if you go to Etsy and put in vagina or or vulva, there's all kinds of things that come up. So I do sometimes troll gyno Etsy for things. And I did find these oak galls, which are of course an astringent that you should grind up these gross little papery wasp nest things and put them in your vagina, you know, to dry and tighten your vagina. It all gets back to, you know, making the vagina dry and tight, which, you know, obviously isn't, doesn't provide good sex for people who have vaginas uh, and can damage your vaginal ecosystem and increase your risk of getting STIs if you're exposed. So there's all kinds of really bad reasons to do that.
1: Yeah, so wasps' nests.
2: Um, <laughs> yeah, that that's kind of like a conversation stopper, isn't it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily. It's. I mean, so what's interesting to me is that most of the stuff on Etsy ships from China. And I know that a fair amount of honey does come from China. I've never even considered that there are factories that are, are essentially producing and or harvesting wasps' nests so they can have their little shop on Etsy to resell it and market it towards that who even came up with that idea but then again I think about that and I realize well someone also came up with the idea for lipstick glue uh, or vaginal glue which was Kate have you
0: heard of this one no I haven't who are these people that are so insecure about how tight their vagina is
2: <laughs> I, This well. has literally never crossed my mind yeah but the labial glue is for periods don't you know like it's to yeah. glue your labia shut. So, you know, so you could be like your own homemade menstrual cup.
0: And a male chiropractor came up with it. So you know it's... I did hear about this. Actually, now that you say it, I did hear about this.
2: Yeah. But, you know, I think that, you know, it's of course, quote, quote, these things, not the labia glue, but, you know, the oak galls and all these other sort of astringents, bags of herbs that you can find on Etsy. I mean, they're all, quote, quote, ancient secrets. Of course, they're not. But it does get back to, you know, this myth that's in so many cultures of vaginal drying, you know, that somehow that this improves sex for men. And I, all I can say is, you know, they're either incompetent or they're horrible. If that's what, you know, if they think a dry, painful vagina is something that is desirable.
1: Yeah. It's literally the opposite of lube, which is what we strongly encourage all of our listeners to double, triple, quadruple up on.
2: Yeah. Um. But, you know, a lot of women who partner with men, I hear about this. Almost every single time I talk to somebody, you know, when I do an interview or a patient, maybe not every single time, but pretty frequently, that women are shamed by their male partners for wanting to use lube. Right. So, oh, like really? oh yeah, like somehow like their sword isn't mighty enough to make them just dripping wet at, you know, the drop of a hat or whatever. And yeah, it's it's not uncommon that women think that there is something wrong with them because they need or prefer lube during sex. I hear this very commonly. And so yeah, I mean, I guess your vagina is supposed to be dry until it's supposed to be dripping wet and then it's supposed to be dry again. I mean, it's one of these impossible standards that's partial well a lot based on misogyny, based in the failure to understand the normal reproductive track and failure to communicate with your partner about what feels good or caring to communicate with your partner.
0: I mean, that's so bizarre to me. Cause I mean, like from my background too, like an adult film, I mean, I will stop the scene again and again. And it'll be, I just did it the other day. I was like, more loop, more loop. Like I was stopping it several times because I needed it. Right. I just kind of looked at the guy and I was like, Hey buddy, this is not going in your hole. If you want it to, then you can have a say in it. But until then, we're going to stop it as many times as I want because I'm not having a torn vagina.
2: Yeah. But it, it's really sad that that idea is so pervasive that some men, I obviously it's not all, but some men, you know, look at the female response as some kind of metric of their own pleasure. And it's like, wait a minute, or their own, you know, competence. It's like, that's not how it works, you know, <laughs> like your penis doesn't get to decide if I'm having, like, like that's not the yardstick, buddy.
0: I think that is a very pervasive thing I notice with civilians more so than with professional like sex workers is that it's not an option for us to not have these very like cut and dry, just this is what I need communication consent conversations because we have to, we're creating a product. So in order for it to work, we have to be able to say, I need this. I don't need this because we all want to get out of there at the end of the day. Uh, But I do notice with civilians, it is so much harder and it's so pervasive that they're like scared to talk about this. Whereas because I've, you know, I'm 25, I've been doing this for several years now. So I just I just say it. It doesn't cross my mind that someone would be upset or offended by it. To me, I think that's a much healthier way to talk about like your boundaries and what you need out of sex.
1: Yeah. And when it comes down to it, I mean, our sex ed in this country is horrific, mm-hmm. but we never really discuss, okay, so once you get into the bedroom, what happens, what's supposed to happen. And people have these preconceived notions of well, it's going to be tight down there or people make a lot of assumptions on what should and shouldn't happen because we don't discuss, oh, yeah, if she's excited, she's going to open up It's just naturally what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I think I, we're
0: scared to say anything because we all want to act like we know what we're supposed to be doing all the time.
2: I think that's a big part of it. And I, I really do agree with the idea that people don't have information about what technically makes good sex. I mean, and I mean, just like the mechanics, like, you know, in general, you know, these are the places to touch for most people, you know, like they, they really have very little information. I mean, so if you were a 13 year old or 14 year old and you were watching say Game of Thrones, right. You would see, like, if you look at the sex scene with like Jon Snow, not Jon Snow, um, the guy who got, well, I hope I'm not spoiling it. The guy who got killed in the red wedding, the first time he has sex with this woman is literally like, Penile insertion and like three seconds later she's having an orgasm. I'm like, you know, so if you're a oh, thir- no. right? So if you're a 13 or 14-year-old boy and you're watching that, like, and that's probably gonna be maybe one of the first sort of, you know, scenes maybe you see, you're gonna think that's how it is when it's sort of like, no. So, you know, I mean, I think you have to be super mindful that it's fascinating to me that people will look at a scene from Mission Impossible with someone jumping out of an airplane. And they'll say, well, of course you can't jump out of an airplane without a parachute. But they'll see then Game of Thrones and it's sex. And three seconds later, there's an orgasm. And they're like, they think that's real. That's definitely my experience too. I mean, I uh, you don't
0: see all of the prep work of lube that goes into like me doing an anal scene. We don't show that because that's it's not really interesting or sexy for someone at home to be watching, but it does happen. But again, it's, it's like mission impossible. Like they're not going to show that he has like the harness on to
2: jump out of the helicopter. Exactly. Exactly. And so what happens is people see that and they think that, you know, wherever they're getting their information from and they think, well, I, I didn't see any, you know, any lube or I didn't see Mm -hmm. whatever. I didn't, you didn't see the conversation that I should be having because it's, you know, it's not an instructional video. Right. And it gets back to like, If people are primed with good information when they're 12, 13, and 14, then when they see those scenes, they'll be like, oh, right, like, we all know that you can't jump out of an airplane. So when we see that, it's not a big surprise. It's entertainment versus education. exactly. But because we don't have non-sophomore conversations about sex, people aren't primed in that same way. What I'm hearing is
1: for if Game of Thrones is ever rebooted in the future, there was that one scene where there was a Starbucks cup in the <laughs> last season. What we should have is in the background some Astroglide.
2: Yeah, or you know, what kind of lube would they have used in a game of? I would have loved to have been like a sexual historian on the show and been like, you know, I mean, of course, in reality, in some horrible place like Westeros, where they flog people and dragons eat them. That maybe lube's not high on their list. I don't know. The Doctor Ruth of yeah or Westeros. I like of Westeros. That. Yeah, I want to be like the little witch in a bog in Westeros, like making up all these sexual pollstices for people. That would just be awesome. I would love that. It'd Be like. Come here, young man. Come, come sit down. Let's, let's have a little chat. HBO, fund this. <laughs> but that's the thing. You're completely
1: right. This information isn't intuitive. I mean, you'll hear something and then the average person doesn't know whether it's true or not because... They think, well, that seems like we should do it. So, for example, steaming your vagina, which I know you've written extensively about, Jen. (laughs) And I mean, if you're someone who steams your food and you consider vagina a food group, well, okay, then I get that. So that might make sense. But... (laughs) Otherwise, I mean, I, I don't even understand, like, what is the thought process behind it? And it just seems like an uncomfortable or an unpleasant experience.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, I guess with the food analogy, I mean, it's like, well, you can, vaginas don't need to be cooked. But I, yeah, I think it's... Should they be seasoned at least? Yeah. You know, only with lube or saliva. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, ejaculate, I guess. Um, so I think that it's important to think about like where, what the origin is. And so vaginal steaming probably stems from, you know, the sort of ancient belief that the uterus wandered the body. So in the time of Hippocrates, which is of course when you want your medicine, right? From the time of Hippocrates, before we knew bacteria and viruses existed. In the time of Hippocrates, they thought the uterus wandered the body, like it would detach itself. And if it went too high, it could cause problems. it make you sluggish and sleepy. If it went too low, it could kill you. So you know, it was kind of like this naughty sheep that wandered your body causing problems. And the way that you could fix it was by putting fragrant herbs between the legs to sort of coax the uterus back into the right place. Uh, So vaginal steamy is probably some kind of derivative of that, right? And that's been around since, like I said, the time of the ancient Greeks. We obviously know that's ridiculous. And the other thing is when you hear people like Gwyneth Paltrow talk about vaginal steaming or really anybody else. I mean, first of all, they don't understand the biology. Steam is unlikely to get in the vagina. And if it did, and if it took oxygen along with it, which it obviously could, that could be harmful because the vagina is a no oxygen environment. But what they do is they talk about it to cleanse the uterus of toxins. So that's the core tenet of the patriarchy, that the uterus is filled with toxins. Like that our reproductive tracts are dirty. So what you're doing is you're taking this core belief of the patriarchy, and putting it in a glass jar and wrapping it with a pink ribbon and saying that's feminism and that's not how it works.
1: I didn't even consider that you're right. You can't open up your vagina that much. So I'm thinking to myself, God, even if you did want to do that quote properly, which it's not, wow. Okay, you'd have to really shove something up there. Yeah, it to... wouldn't work.
2: I mean, you couldn't get you no. really couldn't get steam in there anyway. So it's it's stupid on so many levels. But if you did, it would be harmful, and you know people can get burns. But it's you know, and the herbs that they say to steam are like mugwort, which is a cousin of ragweed, which makes it sound a lot less sexy, doesn't it? Let's squat over a pot of steaming allergens and see what happens. So you know, so I think it's just really important to understand that this sort of is a core sort of patriarchal thing that people are trying to pass off as female impairment. And it's like, no, actually that's internalized misogyny and you need to call it what it is. And it's stupidity. I mean, it's a complete lack of understanding of reproductive biology.
0: From a strictly temperature standpoint, steam in there would be horrific. I mean, that's way, way too hot from your, like your core internal body temperature. Yeah. I
2: mean- Think about when you get like in a super hot hot tub. Like if it's too hot, you're like, ooh, ooh, you know, as you slide in. And it seems hotter than that.
0: Yeah. Anyone who's uh, not gotten the right like lukewarm temperature water for an enema would know how much that hurts if it's too hot. (laughs)
2: Yeah. So you don't, you just think I'm learning. You just, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's, it's really just important to sort of understand that, you know, this is, I mean, now it's become so common sort of this, you know, and that's why Gwyneth Paltrow is actually so dangerous because, you know, most people don't buy this stuff on Goop. Like, I mean, I know she can say her company's worth $250 million, but somebody who says that you can recharge jade eggs with the energy of the moon, I'm supposed to believe your facts? I don't know, I'd like to see proof. Just, you know, you lie to me once, you know, I'm really cautious about any other facts you're, you're spewing. But she's like the couture of these sort of wellness fads. So she talks about, you know, vaginal steaming. She doesn't even probably know what it is. I'm sure she hasn't done it, or maybe she tried it once and who knows. And, but she talked about it. So what happens is then, you know, you can now buy the bags of herbs on Etsy to steam yourself. You can buy a vaginal steaming throne on Amazon. There are spas that offer it. There's even doctors that offer it in their offices. And so what's up? No, I'm serious. And so with these medi spas, right? So you have she sort of sets the couture trend just like, you know, Chanel sending a new tweed suit down the runway, and then you start to see the knockoffs in all these different other other places. And this is the same thing. You start to see the knockoffs. And so that's, you know, why she's particularly dangerous because for some reason she has become a wellness trendsetter. And it's really fascinating to me. I mean, I'm a physician who reads and studies a lot about wellness and there is isn't one thing that she recommends that like I would do.
1: And you mentioned jade eggs. I feel like these eggs have been around now for a little while. The closest I can you know, come to understanding is, I think they're trying to pass it off as strengthening your muscles down there, similar to that of Kegels. So can you go in a little bit more
2: detail about that? Because I don't know what rocks I should be putting into my <laughs> vagina, but clearly zero. Yeah, yeah, no rocks in the vagina, really. So the original post that showed up on Goop was you know, this idea that you would put this jade egg in your vagina and you'd walk around Clenching your muscles to keep it in all day, which is not how you use vaginal weights. So, if you want to pass it off as a vaginal weight, first of all, you should talk about using the weights correctly, which the post did not. It was completely biomechanically incorrect. But, secondly, you know, jade is porous. How are you going to clean it? What happens when it's exposed to the pH of the vagina? Is it going to get damaged? Is bacteria going to lodge in there? Is that going to favor the growth of toxic shock syndrome? And then there's the idea that the jade is going to harness your feminine energy. What is that? I don't know, right? I mean, I'm a gynecologist. If anybody should know how to test people for feminine energy, it should be me. And it's so offensive to say that as a woman that your feminine energy comes from your vagina. That's reducing you to like, you know, this patriarchal ideal. You know, my feminine energy comes from my brain first of all. And there are women who don't have vaginas. There are trans women. There's women who have cancer surgery and have to have their vaginas removed. They're not any less women. And so this idea that a specific body part makes you a woman is is false. It's false and it's harmful. So, you know, and then telling people you can recharge it by the energy of the moon, I mean, fuck right off, man. Like <laughs>
1: The moon causes waves and vaginal energy.
2: Yeah, I mean, and so you have this great privilege, right? This great privilege. And what you're doing is you're telling women to use weights incorrectly that are potentially harmful. And you're lying by saying that they were used by ancient concubines and empresses in China, which they weren't. You know, I, I partnered with Dr. Sarah Parsack and we looked at the artifact holdings of four of the largest collections of, of Chinese artifacts. And of course, you know, we found no jade eggs. We found uh, jade butt plugs and uh, we found jade to go in the mouth. The jade butt plug and the jade to go in the mouth is to keep in chi after death. Right, to stop it from leaking out, which makes sense.
1: And also, I mean, when you die, you do have excrement that comes from your corpse. So the butt
2: plug makes sense. Yeah. I mean, there could be, you know, all kinds of, but, but, you know, the stated reason for that was for chi and, you know, I, that's fine. That, that fits in with your religious beliefs. Totally cool with that. Uh, but there were no jade eggs. And the way the story was woven was so misogynistic. So this idea was that empresses and concubines were keeping their vaginas in shape for emperors. And they were sort of ruling by proxy. And of course, you know, the, the reason empresses and concubines existed was to provide male heirs. And also, um, <laughs> so when I was reading about this, this is one of those interesting tangents. So there are all kinds of ancient Chinese texts that talk about how to have good sex. And they're really detailed, like with stroke length and duration. And the reason for it is, is because sex benefited men. Okay. Um what? Yeah. You're not you're kidding me. Yeah. They believed that when you had an orgasm, that you released the most concentrated form of qi, which is called qing. You want to accumulate as much qi in your life. So having someone making someone orgasm means you can take their qing. So all these guides were for to show men how they could make women orgasm while preventing themselves from orgasming. So they were basically guides of how to rape women of their ching. It kind of puts it in a different context, makes it a lot less empowering, doesn't it? So anyway, so, and, and then it's, there's the idea that there would be this ancient secret, right? That's unknown to archeologists and scholars, but known to, I don't know, a jade egg enthusiast in Southern California.
1: So here's my question. You mentioned that there are, actual weights that, you know, you could do for vaginal exercises. Mm -hmm. What is the purpose of those?
2: And should anyone be doing that? So weights are no more effective than just doing Kegel exercises on your own. It's a big, you know, so all these like people that tell you you should buy fancy weights and stuff, they're no better. It's like saying running on a treadmill is better than running outside. It's not, it's just different. And so, you know, if you're the kind of person who's only going to do your exercises with a cool, fancy thing, right? There are some people who are like that, right? Then great. But you know, if you're the kind of person who bought a bathroom scale and it, you used it for a week and now it's sitting in a corner, you know, maybe you should just try doing the exercises on your own before you waste money. That's all. So, you know, there are some apps now that have trainers where you can actually see on the screen and, and see some biofeedback to see if you're actually squeezing correctly. And those are unstudied. So we don't know if they're actually better than doing the exercises uh-huh. on your own. And you have to be careful because some of those apps keep your data. True. Did you mention they had coaches? Yeah, so there's there's apps where you can, uh, they come with a Bluetooth enabled sort of weight type thing that you put in your vagina and then you squeeze it. And then the um, your phone or device, whatever it's connected to, will tell you if you've actually squeezed your muscles or not. And so s- there are some women who have difficulty knowing if they're doing their Kegel exercises correctly. However, what I would say is, Try the exercises on your own. I certainly have great instructions in the book. And if the exercises on your own aren't working, you actually should probably go in for an assessment before spending all this money on fancy stuff. Because, you know, in general, one or two visits with a specialized physical therapist is probably gonna be much more helpful to you. And then you learn how to do the exercises correctly. These things are generally unstudied and whether they're better than just doing exercises on your own isn't known. And, uh, you know, some of them are quite expensive. And the whole thing about them is, is... like once you know how to do them, it's pretty easy to do it if you need to. And, you know, this idea that you got to stop and put something in your vagina makes it a lot more inconvenient than if you're like standing by the oven waiting for the last five minutes of the bread to cook. Well, you know, I stand there and do my kegels. Why not? You know, the more steps you add to an exercise, the more inconvenient you make it to do, especially it's not like, you know, you're going to whip out your pelvic trainer in the kitchen while everybody's around and stuff that up and go, excuse me, boys, but I'm I'm just going to work on my pelvic floor here as opposed to, you know, I can do my kegels and nobody knows. Yeah. I think the
0: more inaccessible it becomes too, uh, which is a big problem because, you you know, you don't want to put that out that it's only available to women that can afford that, Or women that are comfortable enough to seek it out.
2: Yeah. I mean, these are products are $300. Like they're not cheap. Oh my God. Yeah. And you can do it for free. And if you are unable to do it for free because you can't do the exercises, you should see a healthcare professional before you spend $300
1: that is a really
2: expensive toy to put in my vagina that I'm not enjoying, Jesus. Yeah, and especially if you think it's one of those things that like, how many people have exercise bikes that then they don't use, right? How many people buy treadmills and they don't use? So you have to think about it in that way, very, you know, is this something else that you're just gonna spend money on that is just gonna then sit in your drawer and then you're gonna feel badly about it and making people feel badly about themselves then probably means that you're less likely to do the exercises for free because you, it's going to remind you about that stupid device you bought that you're not using. Oh, that's a good point. So I know you mentioned earlier on that
1: you've had clients come in and worry about whether or not to use Lube, which I had no idea about. Um, so here's my question. What are some common questions that you feel that you get more often than not when people come to visit you for a session?
2: Well, most people come to see me because they have a a medical problem. So they come because they have an itch or they have burning or they have pain with sex. And so I don't see people just for checkups because I'm a subspecialist. So I just see people have vaginal and vulvar problems and pain. But I would say, you know, one of the biggest misconceptions is that they're surprised to find out that sex isn't supposed to be painful that's a surprise that I hear, not infrequently. They might've even said to a doctor 10 years ago, hey, sex hurts. And the doctor just kind of brushed them off and said, oh, use more lube. And then they were kind of brushed off after that. And they never told their partner because maybe they don't communicate well with their partner or they told their partner and the partner's like, well, my last four partners didn't have pain with sex. What's wrong with you? And so then they don't say anything. And it's not until they like read something I wrote in the New York Times. And they're like, wait a minute, Dr. Gunter said, if you have pain with sex, you have a medical condition, you should get seen. And I've had pain with sex for you know 10 or 15 years. So I hear that, which really breaks my heart because there's no reason for that to happen. So that's a common one. I think Another common thing people ask about is the relationship between food and your vagina. That's so common. People are shocked that, what you put in your mouth isn't going to directly change what's going on in your vagina. I'm like, it doesn't directly change what's going on in your nose. So why should it directly change what's going on in your vagina? I mean, your nose is right there. But yeah, it's all these myths, you know, that eating sugar causes yeast infections. It doesn't, you know, if you can have a ton of sugar and if you don't have diabetes, it it doesn't change your sugar levels anywhere. And your vagina actually has higher sugar levels at different times of the cycle than your blood because the good bacteria eats the sugar, you know, so those are ones that people have a really hard time accepting and they're like, well, I don't believe you. Every time I eat something seconds later, I get an itch. I'm like, it's not possible for you to eat something. And then seconds later to have an impact elsewhere in your body, it's not possible unless it's burning in your mouth and you're having an immediate irritant reaction. It's not possible. You know? So then you try to explain the nocebo effect that, you know, if you expect a bad thing to happen, then it, it probably will. And we see that in studies and it doesn't mean you're making it up. It just means your brain is a very powerful tool. Those are the biggest ones I think.
1: Huh. So here's another question. What about vaginal discharge? I know that that comes in many shapes, sizes, forms,
2: smells. And colors. Yeah. Yeah. i get a lot of questions about that. In fact, a couple of years ago, I was so fed up. And when I say fed up, I'm not angry at my patients at all. I'm angry at the internet for providing misinformation to my patients. But I'd had like, you know, maybe the fifth or sixth patient in a row in my specialty clinic, you know, complaining about her discharge. And I'd look at her underwear and go, boy, that's, you're lucky. Um, You know, that's like on the low end because there's, you know, this whole idea again, right? Vagina is supposed to be dry until they're dripping wet and then they're supposed to be dry again. And so I got out a syringe because it's normal to have up to three to four milliliters of discharge in 24 hours. You know, the average might be one to two, but you can have up to three to four. I made the solution. I put some iodine in it to, so you could see it on a mini pad. And I started squirting it out on the pad. So this patient could see, and she was just like shocked. So then I made it it into a video and I put it on YouTube and like within a day it had like a hundred thousand views or something. It was just like ridiculous. And everybody was going nuts over it because no one had like talked about discharge to just to show women like you can have a lot. And if what you see is really bothersome to you, well, don't wear black underwear for starts because that's, you know, you write, you, <laughs> you see it more on black underwear than on others. It, it looks far more. And that, you know, obviously if there's an itch or a, a change in smell or it's, you know, dark green and that's not normal for you, green would be abnormal or blood tinged. Of course, you should come in and get it checked out. But, you know, it's normal to have clear creamy, yellowy discharge, and at times there's going to be more than others. And if you're ovulating, you might have massive glops kind of mid-cycle, like it could drip down into the toilet, and that's got a fancy name that's called spinbarket. barket. <laughs> That sounds like a Greek dish. Yeah, it's it's actually supposed to be German. I'm sure I butchered the pronunciation. But it's a thick mucus and you can actually pick it up and you can stretch it out. So that's the I don't know, I think spin must be stretch or something. Anyway, so yeah, and so you can have a lot of discharge and you know if you had sex the night before and there's some ejaculate in there or there was some leftover lube. I mean, you know, so there can be a lot of stuff that comes out the next day.
0: So I'm a big believer in cotton underwear. Um, because I like to let my vagina breathe. What would you say is best? Because I've actually heard different, I follow a lot of uh, lingerie bloggers people because I'm interested in that. I've heard people say silk is better. Cotton's actually not good. I've heard people say bamboo. What's your take on that?
2: Yeah. You don't need like your underwear is not going to stop air circulating to your vulva. It's just not unless you're wearing latex, right? So if you're wearing rubber or latex, that would be totally different, but actually cotton underwear doesn't make any difference. Just wear what's comfortable. There's no change. If you're sweating from your underwear, then, you know, maybe that's too tight or too, if it's uncomfortable, if it's chafing, but just wear what feels comfortable against your skin. You know, it's always fascinating to me that we talk so much about the kind of underwear women should wear, but we don't talk. I mean, men's junk is on the outside if it was super important to take care of your genitals clothing wise, why is this industry not geared towards men? Because it's all purity myths, all, you know, telling women that they should wear cotton, you know, because, you know, silk is loose and thongs and lace is loose. And I mean, it's all really has its origin in purity myths and total medical dogma. So wear what's comfortable and what you like. I personally prefer the um, the high-tech fabrics because I'm a runner and I like stuff that wicks the sweat away from my skin and I'm super lazy and if I don't have a whole bunch of that underwear then I'll end up wearing a lace thong when I'm running then I will be irritated. So I love the high-tech, high-wick underwear which is certainly not cotton or silk. Uh, has anyone ever come out with a line of athletic underwear? Oh yeah, there's tons of them. Like um Athleta has it and Lululemon. I like their athletic underwear. I've got some from REI before. I have no idea what brand it is. Uh, but yeah, there's there's lots of good, you know, running underwear. Yeah, um, I actually have a couple of pairs. I was just cleaning out my underwear drawer
0: this morning, randomly enough. Um, But yeah, I have a couple of pairs of those too that are, they feel like, um yeah, they feel like they're made of the same as yoga pants. Or like
2: sports bras. How do I not know this? It's a thinner version of that material. Absolutely. And if you think about the period underwear, like Thinks and all those, none of those are made out of cotton right? And those have all been, you know, people wear those right up. It's totally fine. And those are actually quite tight. Well, not tight, but they're fitted because you don't want to have leaks. So the, the only thing that's going to cause your skin to be irritated, the only thing that's going to really affect it is if it's trapping moisture. So for example, if you have incontinence and you're wearing, you know, you have to wear heavy duty incontinence garments, which have quite a significant plastic backing, right? That's going to trap the moisture. If you have incontinence and you're wearing menstrual pads instead of incontinence pads, the menstrual pads can't hold that volume. So you're going to have that wetness back against your skin. So, totally fine, whatever you're comfortable with. Wear underwear, wear don't. You know, I personally love fancy underwear, but I have a large collection of athletic underwear simply. So, I make sure I have what I need when I go running or bike riding.
1: I think going back to the discussion uh, that we were having regarding discharge, if you think about it, at the end of the day, I think discharge just unfortunately isn't sexy enough to talk about uh, or really to write about. So some people get grossed out at the concept of bodily fluids. And yet we Talk about semen all the time, I feel like, when it comes to media. Oh, yeah. ejaculate's like awesome, right?
2: Like, hmm. I, <laughs> uh, but God forbid we discuss what comes out of the other person. Right. <laughs> I love talking about vaginal discharge. I talk about it all day long because it's so amazing. It's such an amazing evolutionary tool. I mean, you have all this good bacteria that... fights the bad bacteria that produces the uh, lactic acid, which keeps the pH low. It produces things like called lacticins, which are natural, basically like natural antibiotics, if you will. Then you have the mucus, which is sort of like a tennis net stretched out over all the cells. And that's like a physical protective barrier and also helps your immunoglobulins and all your natural sort of defense mechanisms gain access to the cells. And it prevents bacteria from adhering to the cells. And then your cells shed about every four hours. The surface of the vagina is constantly shedding. And the reason for that is, is one, the dead cells are filled with the sugar, which then breaks down and feeds the good bacteria. But the dead cells also are like a decoy. So say you get a bad bacteria or virus, and it wants to attach to a cell. That's how it's going to cause harm. The first cells it meets are these free floating cells in the vaginal discharge. So it attaches to them and it's like, but ha those are dead cells. They're getting flushed out. So too bad. It's, it's almost like flypaper, if you will, for bacteria. So those are just like so cool. I, I think that we need to talk about all the glory of vaginal discharge and how it's just such a finely tuned uh, mechanism. And I'm sure there's tons of things that we still don't know, because with the advent of sort of DNA technology in the last sort of 10 to 15 years is when we found out about all the different kinds of lactobacilli and other bacteria that are there. And, you know, as new technologies developed, maybe we're going to find more cool things.
1: So speaking of bodily fluids, I think you could settle score on this one. And Kate, you are welcome to jump in on this. Uh, Squirting, real or just urine?
2: (laughs) Well, the studies tell us that women who report squirting, so releasing a gush of fluid, like a large volume of fluid, so not, you know, one or two milliliters that are kind of leaking out from either side of the urethra, because that could be fluid from skein's glands, but large amounts of fluid are urine and there's no gland there that can hold, you know, five or 10 cc's of fluid. And The prostate is the size of a walnut, and it only makes three to four milliliters, right? So, you know, it's making far less. And there was a study where they looked at women who reported that they squirted, and what they did was they did ultrasounds of their bladder. And uh, then they had them empty their bladders, and they stimulated themselves, and they monitored their bladders with ultrasound. And then after they squirted, they repeated the ultrasound, and they analyzed the fluid. The fluid was most compatible with urine, and they noticed that the women's bladders filled incredibly quickly during when they were excited, and then afterwards their bladders were empty right? So it's certainly possible that women who report squirting are having stronger pelvic floor contractions and that's why their bladder's emptying and that's why they report it feels better. It's possible that that rapid bladder filling is a sign that they're getting different kinds of stimulation and it feels better. So I can explain many different ways that women feel that it's more satisfying to them. And the fact that their bladders are filling very quickly suggests it's probably really quite dilute the urine and that's probably why there isn't much of a smell.
0: And I could tell you that in the movies, just like everything else, it's a special effect. It's absolutely urine. And uh, it's performed by chugging like two bottles of
2: Pedialyte right before a scene. Oh my God. I wish, can we like have that clip? And can I use that over and over again of that clip? Because I hear so many women are like, I try to explain this to them and they just, they think like I'm dismissing their sexual experience and I'm not. I'm like, I could explain how that might feel better for you, but here's the mechanics. And
1: that makes so much sense. And especially if, you know, you have such a short time frame in order to dilute it. I mean, it's not going to take on necessarily the same color scent or anything as if you had urine in your system for an extended period of time. So,
0: yeah. Okay. that. Yeah, no, it's very well hydrated. Um, It smells like Pedialyte. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't personally squirt. I can't, like, I'm a little pee shy. Like, I cannot pee in front of that many people, like, oh man. <laughs> But uh, I have been in scenes where, like, that was the point of the scene. The other girl was doing that, and uh, yeah, that's they're sitting there, you know, chugging Pedialyte, and that's what it smells like. Um, and it's clear because they're they're so well hydrated, right? Exactly. It's a special effect. It's I have squirted, um, in scenes that much smaller than that. So it's I would say my squirting is way more on par with like. I think what a, a regular woman would experience if she were to squirt, like, you know, in a non-videoed <laughs> scenario. And for me, it's always been with G-spot stimulation. That's like what's, and I think that's true for most people that aren't just peeing on command. Mm-hmm. We
1: had Eli Cross on a few weeks ago, and he was telling us how there was this one performer that would essentially chase the camera while she was squirting. So all I could wonder is, does that camera have insurance on it? It does. What happens if you damage it? yeah it it
0: has to having been the camera person standing there and I was I was once filming a scene um, because I used to work behind the scenes where I had the camera you know right on her and I had this light right on her too and I knew it was going to come and I was just just (laughs) praying to God I was like please 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 like let me be able to
2: move this camera fast enough (laughs) because otherwise (laughs) I'm going to need to shower before I go home (laughs) yeah so yeah you've got the medical explanation you've got the acting explanation, you've got both sides you've got it covered Listeners, you've heard it, so there's a the science.
1: <laughs> Switching topics, I know one of the biggest hot topics right now in the news, or forever it seems like, is abortion and healthcare. And you actively speak about this. Constantly on Twitter. And let's start with why is abortion healthcare? So, sorry, listeners, if you disagree, you're going to be wrong.
2: Yeah. I mean, if you disagree, then you're wrong. And there's that's all there is to it. It's a healthcare because I'm a doctor and that's what I say and that's what medicine says. So, you know, I think that when people don't have access to safe abortion, then they have unsafe abortion. So, if you want to keep people healthy, then you give them access to the quality medical care in a safe way that they need. And if you are someone who well, I don't think abortion's right. Well, then I hope you're out there providing free long acting reversible contraception and free really contraception of any kind to everybody who asks. Because certainly one of the biggest reasons for abortion in the United States is unplanned pregnancies and a large percentage of those could be prevented with better access to different methods of contraception. So you know, I think it just depends on how honest you are with yourself about what you are intending. And the majority of people in America who speak against abortion certainly are forced birthers. You know, they're not pro life. They if they were pro life, they would first of all care about people being killed by gun violence, so you can say, okay, well, they're they're just pro fetal life, okay. Um, so if you're just pro fetal life, then you would want to ban cigarettes because smoking is cause of stillbirth. You'd want to have forced mandatory vaccinations because measles, mumps, rubella, those are all bad during pregnancy. Influenza is bad during pregnancy. You would want to ban guns because pregnant women get shot. They are at higher risk of domestic violence and a dead. Pregnant woman is bad for her fetus. You know, you would want free universal maternity care because we know that reduces prematurity, which is the number one cause of a neonatal death. So, you know, if you were truly pro-life, there would be all those things you would pro-fetal life, you'd advocate for. So since you don't, what you want is for someone to be forced to have a delivery when they're pregnant. And that makes you a forced birther.
0: I'll chime in on that as far as long-term contraceptive care. um, I'm from Colorado originally. Mm -hmm. The state of Colorado launched a pilot program a couple of years ago um, before I left to provide uh, free IUDs to anyone, I believe, over the age of 16. Right. You can get them if you ask. And we saw our teen pregnancy rate plummet, I think, 40%. Absolutely. It was incredibly successful. I have one. I got one back then, too,
2: as part of that pilot program, and I've been incredibly happy with it. And a good friend of mine is someone who was one of the head researchers in that. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful study. And the contraceptive choice study out of St. Louis also tells us that as well. And that, you know, giving people access to, you know, long acting reversible contraception can empower them in so many ways. And, you know, if you want to reduce teen pregnancy, if you want to reduce, you know, abortion, if you just want to give people a chance to control their lives, which is really the thing, have them have access to the kind of contraception that they want to have. So there's so much hypocrisy about that. But yeah, I, I speak up about abortion because I've done them. You're a doctor, you know, the actual yeah, methodology. Absolutely. Of it. I was trained to do them. I did them for many years. I haven't done abortions for me about 12 years because I'm in a place in the country. I'm fortunate now that I live somewhere where there are other people to do that. So for many years, I lived places where there weren't. And so, you know, I feel that I have this experience and I have this voice. And if I really am the internet's most famous gynecologist or whatever, then I need to use that privilege correctly. And I don't want to use my privilege to sell shitty jade eggs. I want to use my privilege to give people facts.
1: Totally agree. I actually just got back from Amsterdam, which was really interesting because when I was learning about their healthcare, apparently they have the lowest abortion rate. And guess what? Contraceptives are free abortions. You need it. You get it. It costs nothing. It's even government funded. And not only that, but
2: they start their sex ed at age of six in kindergarten. I mean, I think that's probably actually one of the sort of all of those would be the contributor.
1: It's a combination of everything.
2: And I mean, in Canada, so there's universal health care. So obviously there's that difference. But, you know, it's closer to the U.S. than, you know, a Northern European country, like in, you know, just sort of socioeconomics Mm -hmm. and we have no abortion law. It's not legal. It's not illegal. It's funded by the government. Now there are definitely access issues. If you live in a rural community, there are some provinces with no abortion providers. So there are issues and contraception is not free. Like people pay for their birth control. They pay for their IUD. So they're a lot cheaper. And some people have drug plans that cover them. The abortion rate is lower in Canada with free abortion and no law than it is in the States.
1: In the States, what's really frustrating is in order to get contraceptives, prior to the ACA coming in, where employers were forced to provide contraceptives under health care, you don't have many options. So for example, I've been in positions where people will say, well, why can't you just go out and buy some birth control? Yeah, because maybe if your birth control costs the one you need, $120 a month, it's not cheap and you can't get it over at a counter. You have to visit a doctor. So you have to be able to afford visiting a doctor or at least pay the copay. And well, let's say you're not in a position to pay for either of that. Let's say the doctor's visit could cost, without insurance, $100, $150. And then on top of that, you know, every single month you have that additional expense. And then, you know, there's plenty of reasons to use it, you know, whether for hormonal purposes or not just pregnancy.
2: That sort of. Exposes so many layers of problems with the American healthcare system. So, first of all, you don't need a doctor's visit to get birth control. As long as you don't have a history of high blood pressure or history of migraines with aura, you know, so you can have a screening phone call or you can read a package insert, right? Tylenol is probably more dangerous than birth control pills. So, you know, I trust women to read package inserts and to take care of themselves. You know, if you're a smoker over 35, then you shouldn't be taking birth control pills with estrogen. So that can be done over the phone. If you have high blood pressure, then you need a visit. You need to know what your blood pressure is. That has to to be sorted out. But that's not the majority of women. Mm. So that you shouldn't have to pay for that visit. Secondly, a lot of the generic pills are, you can buy them or you used to be able to buy them for like $5 at Target. But we have all this marketing from drug companies that tells people that, oh, you need to have this new pill, that this new pill is better, that there's all these differences. And they're really for the majority of women, very little differences. Now, some women are do seem to have a sensitivity to the different kinds of progestins that are in the pills. And the pills do come in different doses. But for the majority, of people that $5 generic is going to be just fine. I still believe it should be free, but you know, how are we in a place where people can't afford birth control yet? You could get it for $5 a pack at Target if the system was set up the right way. Like a lot of people could, but the system's just, it's set up to be so hard and it's set up to put obstacles at every path. And, but of course it should, I mean, contraception, it should be the same price, whether you want a pill, whether you want an implant, the reason you choose shouldn't be the price. It should be the efficacy. And I will say that the price, the market price on my IUD, I believe is somewhere between 900 and and $1,000. Oh, absolutely. And then you add the insertion and everything. And you know, it's really fascinating. I trained in Canada and we inserted a lot more IUDs there because the insertion's free. And people just, we would give them a prescription and they would go to the pharmacy and buy the IUD and then bring it to the appointment. And they were $40 Canadian, right? Oh. So you got 10 years of contraception for $40 Canadian. So $4 a Aww. year, right? Like that seems like a reasonable price. You might say, "Sure, $4 a year." Yeah, I think I think most people would say no, that's an okay thing to pay for contraception. I'm all right with that. You know, that's less than a pack of condoms really. And so, uh, you know, when I came to the States, that same IUD was like $500 or $400. And then I was like, what? It's like the same. But of course, then there's also the fact that doctors get sued over IUD insertions, even though, you know, the risk of perforation is incredibly low. Even 13 to 17 year olds do very well with IUD insertions. So we have so much medical legal sort of issues down here. So it's just, there's so many, layers of complexity, but really there's no reason why a copper IUD shouldn't be $40.
0: And I do actually have a question about that as well, because I had heard this and I believe this is misinformation. I know there's a lot of misinformation about IUDs, Um, but I recently heard someone say, because obviously I have sex with multiple partners. um, And I recently heard someone say that, you know, the IUD is not designed for someone who has sex with multiple partners, that it increases your risk of like bacterial infection because of having it. I've never experienced that. It sounded kind of like hocus to me.
2: Yeah, so a lot of that's misinformation. So certainly there's a risk of infection associated with insertion of the IUD in the first sort of 21 days. That's not related to your sexual partners. That's just the bacteria in the vagina. Um, And that risk is sort of, you know, it's like less than 1%. So that's just the risk. If you got pelvic inflammatory disease and had an IUD in place, so meaning you were exposed to chlamydia, you ascended up to your tubes, it caused an abscess, it's a possibility that things might be a little bit harder to treat with an IED in place. That's a possibility. But that's not... Putting you at risk, you know what I mean. You're like you were going to get that infection whether you had the IUD or not. You know what I'm saying? So it's not causing it. It's possible that it might make it a little bit more complicated the treatment, but it might not. So you know, there's a lot of ifs and buts there. It is true that we don't know. There are some women who develop biofilms with IUDs, and what biofilms are are like Saran Wrap, like substance that bacteria or fungi make. That kind of coat themselves onto equipment. So you can also get biofilms on braces, right? So it's sort of like, like stuff getting stuck on foreign bodies. That's really the best way to say. And some women who have you know recurrent yeast infections or recurrent bacterial vaginosis um, may have biofilms on their IUDs. And so we don't really know enough about the testing. This is a very new area of research, but You know, again, you can get that if you've only had one lifetime partner. It's very complex. We don't really understand. And in fact, there's some literature that suggests the biofilm may actually come from a male partner's penis. So we just we don't really know. So I would say that there's no increased risk with having an IUD and having multiple partners. But there are some kind of unknowns with biofilms and things, and we just don't really have enough to answer. But that could apply to any woman.
1: I know the first time I went to a gynecologist and asked about an IUD, I actually did get some misinformation that I didn't know until later wasn't true. They told me that I couldn't have an IUD unless I had already had a kid.
2: Yeah, that's a big myth. So that was, and it's very sad to hear that still perpetuated or even recently perpetuated because the study that disproved that I think it was published like 1991 or 1992. So we're not talking like new data here. You know, a lot of this came before we had molecular diagnostics for STI for sexually transmitted infections, right? I mean, people forget, but like in the 70s and the 80s, we knew a lot less about bacteria than we know now, like a lot. And so the concern was, is that, oh, IUDs might put women at risk for pelvic inflammatory disease. Oh, so then if a woman's never been pregnant and we put an IUD in, then we're going to make her barren. Well, Maybe she doesn't want to have kids. I mean, so there's a lot of patriarchy that's in there too. But obviously some women might say, oh, well, I might want to have kids one day. So that wouldn't work for me versus a woman says, well, I don't give a shit. I don't want to have kids. So load me up.
1: I explained that one to my gynecologist. They told me that when I met the right
2: partner, I would change my mind. Again, former gynecologist for a reason. I hate that. But so what we found in the study that was published in the England Journal of Medicine was that tubal infertility so scarring of the tubes had nothing to do with whether or not you had an IUD and everything to do with whether or not you'd had chlamydia which makes sense mm. um, because chlamydia scars the tubes. So once that link was completely disproven, there was really no reason to say to any woman, right? For someone who does that, well, yeah, I want to have kids in five years. Well, great, fine. Let's load you up an IUD. So, you know, because of the medical legal system in the States and purity culture, right? Oh, Women should preserve their uteruses for future babies, you know, and not accepting that that might not be the path every person wants to walk. Um, so those things, medical legal, purity myths, and lack of you know, education were a big issue. I mean, a couple of years ago, I, I wrote a post about, you know, why you can have an IUD if you've never been pregnant several years ago. And I was contacted by a woman who's a young woman who said um, she was going in for her IUD appointment. And she kind of suspected that maybe her doctor was going to be one of those patriarchal ones that hadn't kind of caught up. So she printed off my blog post. So she went in for her appointment and when he said she couldn't have it because she'd never been pregnant, she whipped out the blog post and threw it down on the table. And she said, well, Jen Gunter says I can. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. And she got her IUD. I love it. Now, I mean, no one should have to do that. They shouldn't have to. No. But I I bet that doctor never told another woman again that. So she really did a service. And, and that's, you know, those are the things that make me so happy. And that's what an empowered patient is. And it makes complete
1: sense. And- I have to bring this up. Third trimester abortions. I know we can talk for hours about this, but overview and highlights. What are people getting wrong? Because I feel like in the news, especially this year, um, I know, for example, earlier this year, Congress introduced and thankfully blocked S311, which was called the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, which Basically, to sum it up, guys, it would imprison any doctor or healthcare practitioner found to not have adequately cared for a fetus that survived an abortion attempt. Hint, by the way, infanticide is kind of illegal everywhere. Right. So.
2: Yeah. So the whole Born Alive Act. I mean, there's no abortion survivors in the way that people think. I mean you certainly could do a medical abortion at eight weeks and have it not work. You know, there's like maybe a two to 3% chance that it's not going to work. I, I I don't have the odds off the top of my head, but it's, you know, slow. And so certainly, you know, if you decide to carry through with a pregnancy, the odds are that things are actually going to, developed quite fine and we wouldn't do anything different. So you could call those people, I guess, technically abortion survivors, but you know, they're really just, they were a failed abortion and that's fine. The person continued on with the pregnancy. So this idea that we're going to do a surgical abortion and that there's going to be this fetus that emerges and that then we're going to kill this now infant is so ludicrous. I mean, first of all, we're doing an abortion it's not coming out live. Just going to tell you that. That's that's the procedure so that doesn't happen. And so it's this whole idea that women are showing up. This is the sort of Republican agenda that women are showing up at 36 weeks to have abortions because they just realized now they wanted one. Like what? Like they just realized their pants were tight? Like really? That's how little you think of women that they were walking down the street thinking Oh, my jeans are tight. Oh my God, I'm pregnant. Look, there's a BOGO abortion sale. Let me get my girlfriend and we're going to go have a BOGO 36 week abortion. I mean, that's the image. I mean, I could never pass up a sale, Right? Like, I mean, I, you know, I've got my BOGO sign out, you know, I'm going to go down and see if I can round some girls up from the bus, right? Like, so it's this idea that we're luring women or that women are so stupid that they didn't realize that they were pregnant until they're 36 weeks. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. So are there third trimester abortions? Sure, of course there are. There are women that have severe fetal malformations and they didn't get diagnosed until they were maybe 25, 26 weeks. And they don't show until 25, 26 weeks. Yeah, I mean, and, and the reason why sometimes the diagnosis might be delayed is now we have MRIs. So now we can do this advanced imaging. They can meet with fetal surgeons and they can decide if this is something that, and it takes, sometimes they're like, ooh, that first MRI is a hard call. So you have to come back and do it again. And, you know, because the fetus is moving during the MRI, so maybe the image wasn't good or maybe they needed to see the development. Maybe they needed to know if that part of the brain had stopped developing or not. So, you know, you might have someone who has... Holoprosencephaly, which is a horrible condition where most of the forebrain doesn't exist. Sometimes they have a proboscis with a single eye like a cyclops, right? And so maybe they're not diagnosed until they're 25 weeks. What's not compatible with life? Why should they have to go all the way to term if they want to have an abortion, right? So those are the majority of those cases. Or there might be somebody who, you know, has a fetal malformation. They were going to go ahead and go to term and their fetus is lying transverse. So it's a cross that can't come out, right? The baby can't come out width-wise. And so the option is then a C-section or an abortion. And she's like, well, I don't want to have a C-section for a fetus that we're just going to give comfort care to. Some people might, and some people wouldn't. I mean, so those are the situations, right? Or, you know, rarely there might be somebody at like 25 weeks who's got severe pregnancy-induced hypertension, and she needs to be delivered as soon as possible. And her fetus is incredibly growth-restricted because of the hypertension, meaning her fetus is not going to survive. There's plans to not do any resuscitation. Even though it's 25 weeks, it's the size of a 21-week fetus, right? So technically, that would be a third trimester abortion, but it's not compatible with life. And why shouldn't she get an induction of labor that's going to be safer for her or have an abortion rather than having a C-section, which is riskier for her? Those are the situations. You know, they're so expensive, the procedures, that the idea that Women are walking around with $30,000 cash to have this procedure. Is that how much it costs? That would probably be what it would be for like a 32 or 34 week procedure. Yeah. If you're paying, if you don't have an an indication that your insurance is going to cover you for, right? So who has that money, right? Like, so there's to think about that. Like how many people have that money? And it's really only, I think I was reading according to,
1: I think it was the Guttmacher Institute, Uh a little more than 1% occur in after 21 weeks, abortion-wise. So it's so few. And only, I think, seven states allow abortion up to birth. And all states have laws banning
2: late-term abortions, but still allow exceptions under certain circumstances. Yeah. I mean, it's important to not actually use the term late-term abortion simply because it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It just doesn't mean anything. And it's actually meant, it's not a medical term and it's meant to sort of make people think that we're doing abortions at 38 weeks because term is 40 weeks and post-term Is 42 weeks. So it's sort of to try to make people think we're doing abortions at like 40, 41 weeks. So when we talk about abortion, we talk about trimesters or we talk about the gestational agent weeks. So we'd say like 32 weeks or because there's a huge difference doing a procedure at 32 weeks versus 26 weeks, even though they're both third trimester. So the number that are happening at 21 weeks and after are it's something like 1.3% of procedures or in that range. A large percentage of them are fetal anomalies. And you know, is there an occasional person who was raped and didn't come forward or get the money until she was 24, 25 weeks. Sure. That's a possibility. But, uh, you know, you're talking about maybe a couple of year.
0: Well, and I think the concept of, of calling yourself pro-life when you're advocating for these fetuses to have these short, horrifically painful, miserable lives is just, is baffling.
2: Yeah. It's nothing pro-life. And this idea that you're taking something You know, and I I had um, a son who died at 22 and a half weeks. I delivered him and elected to not have him resuscitated. And so he had comfort care. And that's what was actually being talked about, which then the right wing conflated and made that into infanticide. And it's like, it is perfectly standard of medical care to give a terminally ill newborn a blanket and provide them with warmth and have them die. That is palliative care. Maybe sometimes there would be medications given, but generally not. For most infants, they're dying because their lungs don't work, their hearts don't work, and it's going to be quite quick. And there's really no other way. It'd be more painful to put IVs in and things like that, right? So what they've done is they've twisted that, which is looking after providing palliative care, and they've distorted it and bastardized it and said that that is infanticide with abortion. And it's just so foul that, like... How much do you hate people to twist palliative care to force your agenda, palliative care of newborns who are born to die? And you know, it's so- It's compassion. Yeah. They have no compassion. They don't care because they raise money and they get votes off of punishing women very specifically women are bad if they need abortions. The only good abortion is my abortion, right? So women are, women are bad. Women are evil. They're sluts. They should have closed their legs. That message fundraises for the Republican party and it gets them votes. And that's why they're going to keep using it.
1: And we definitely won't see eye to eye with people who believe in forced births, because at the end of the day, it, Comes down to a philosophical argument and a personal responsibility argument that we can't really see eye to eye with because, unfortunately, there's no it's just black and white, there's no gray. And unfortunately, there's a lack of information there as well. But you were definitely right in correcting me when it came to, for example, when I said late term. Because, for example, this specific bill that I mentioned previously, one of the biggest issues and contentions with it I noticed was that. It had certain language that, depending on how you define that language, you can really start pulling back Roe v. Wade. So, for example, how do you define abortion attempt? How do you define born alive? Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, because of how broad some things have been written, it can be applied. So that way, you know, the
2: healthcare provider can be charged, unfortunately, with. Murder. Yeah. I mean, it's impossible. So all these bills say, oh, we have a life of the mother rider in it. Well, that doesn't mean anything. I can't interpret those. I've been in a situation where I was living in a state where we weren't allowed to do abortions left the life of the mother was at risk hospital attorneys couldn't interpret it. No one knew what it meant. I didn't know what it meant. (laughs) The intensive care doctor looking after the woman was like, well, I think her life's at risk. I'm like, well, is she going to die right now? Well, not right this second. I mean, the whole point of medical care is to hopefully provide care before you're actively dying, right? Like we want to get care to you before death is unhooking your IV. Like- we'd like to be there before then. I think that's what most people would like too. Most people would actually like care a few days before that, maybe even a few weeks. So, you know, I had to call this senator at home who wrote the bill. And I said, so I started to explain the case and I was all prepared to advocate for this woman. And I, you know, her life was in my hands and I was going to help save this woman's life. And, you know, he just stopped me and he said, oh, do whatever you think, doctor, do whatever you think. Well, so if whatever I think was what should happen? Why do we have this law? We have this law because you fundraise and you get votes off punishing women. And that's when it became very clear.
1: So on that note, so Jen, you have a fantastic series right now. So for our Canadian listeners, they could tune into uh, called Jen's And you just came out with a book called The Vagina Bible, which I can't wait to dig into. I know, Kate,
0: you've already gotten right into it yourself. Yes, I bought it yesterday. I was flying uh, back from Denver and I started
2: on the plane. It's really good. I like it so far. Thank you so much. Yeah, I've got Jen's Planning in Canada. I've got my blog. Um, I've got The Vagina Bible. I'm a contributor to The New York Times and I have two columns that I write for there. One is You Asked, which is a weekly advice column. And if you write in, I might answer your question. And then I have a monthly column in the style section called The Cycle. And then I also am now a contributor for Dame as well. Nice. So
1: guys, everything will be in the show notes so you could, guys can follow Jen. Kate, where can
0: our listeners hear more of you? You can find me on Twitter in two places. Uh, you can find me my not safe for work Twitter is Kate Kennedy XXX. My safe for work Twitter, which is mostly jokes, is uh, at the OG Kennedy. And I'm not on Instagram, so sorry. <laughs> the day I got banned from Instagram was the best day of my life. It's honestly such a burden off my shoulders. It's too much work anyway. Wait, it's it's just just I don't pretty that photos. good most days. I don't want to take pictures of myself.
1: So guys, you can uh, hear more of me next week on the show, but also you could follow me at Rational Blonde on Twitter, or you guys could support us on our Patreon, patreon.com slash 2girls1mike. We have at least 19 additional episodes you can listen to. It's five bucks a month to support us and support the audio editing that goes into this show, the hosting, sending a Jen, uh, sending a Jen, <laughs> not not just any Jen, uh, Jen Gunter, a mic. Thanks for tuning in this week and uh, we'll catch you guys next time around. So bye-bye.